Well, hello and welcome to this fourth of the series of podcasts brought to you by AGRA, the Association for Genealogists and Researchers and Archives, the body representing professional genealogists in England and Wales. I'm Nick Serple, and today we'll be looking at manorial records. These documents are absolutely invaluable for placing even humble ancestors in a certain place at a certain time, and they paint a really fascinating picture of the lives they led. The manor was the principal unit of local government until the 19th century and should be an area of great interest for any family historian. On today's panel, we have three agro-genealogists or experts in this field, Ian Waller, Catherine Ryan and Sue Adams. And the discussion is chaired by the editor of Family Tree magazine, Helen Tovey. Hello, I'm really excited today to be talking to Ian and Catherine and Sue about manorial records, because I know only a tiny bit about them, but the little I do know makes you realise what a great opportunity they are to kind of time travel back to our ancestors' communities in the past. Ian, could you tell us a little bit about what a manor is? Because we're, we're used to seeing the manor houses maybe in villages near us, but in the past, like what area did they cover? How do they compare to a parish or a county? Are they big or little, whatever? Most manors had their roots, I suppose, in Anglo-Saxon times, and they really became effective around the, the mid-1200s, essentially as a, a feudal agricultural estate held by a lord, I suppose you could call him a landlord, from the crown. They affected every aspect of our ancestors' lives, well into the 19th century, and even in some cases, right up to the Law of Property Act in, in 1925. But we'll address that a little bit later on, hopefully. Most of us will associate manners with being connected to a parish. But interestingly enough, there were around 19,000 manors in England and Wales, and there are only 11,000-something, um, both ecclesiastical and, and civil parishes. Family historians sometimes get slightly confused because manorial names often bear no resemblance to the parish, the town or the village that they are located in. For example, up in Bedfordshire, where, where I live, um, if you look at the parish of Henlow, which is a fairly small rural parish, it actually has four manors. You may end up researching in four manors to find out where your ancestor was actually resident. Each manor becomes a, a manor estate, if you like. If you go back to the, the three-field system, the strip farming system, where you have two fields in cultivation, one in, in fallow, where you have something called a, a, a domain, which is spelt as demesne, which is a weird word. Um, that's the bit that is, is relevant to the, the lord of the manor's own area. But you also have things like wasteland, woodland, all split between the various manorial tenants. And that becomes the manorial estate. And the organisation as such starts obviously with the crown because the monarch is the, is the freeholder of all land in, the, in the, the, the country. He devises part of that land to a manorial lord who I suppose becomes the tenant in chief. You then have various rates of tenancy beneath that. 
So thanks, Ian. That was great to have an idea of what a great big long time span that the manorial records cover from the medieval period right up until the early 20th century, if we're lucky. But during this period that manors were kind of in action, what sort of records are they actually producing? Because that's what you want to know as family historians. And what sort of clues might these records give us about our ancestors? That might be quite a massive question, Sue. But what sort of thing are we going to find when we go and track down some manorial records for our ancestors' manor? Well, I'd encourage people to use the later manorial records, particularly from 1733 when they're all in English. That helps a great deal. But also there's a lot more available from about the 1500s through to the the 1700s is the sort of peak of, of the numbers of records available. And it is thousands of records. I mean, Ian mentioned that there were, what was it, 19,000 manors for each manor. There's a whole series of court books. And for me, the, the core record is the court baron, which is where all the property transfers happened. Because you've got the this, this hierarchical system, as Ian mentioned, of the monarch, the lord of the manor, and then the tenants. Now, each tenant holds from the Lord of the Manor, and all those transactions go through the court barrack. Property is surrendered to the Lord before it can another a new tenant can be admitted. Likewise, with inheritance, it's if it goes back to the Lord before the heir can be admitted. And those transactions are all recorded in the court baron. There's also the court leet, which is a it's more colourful because it's a sort of minor criminal court for the later period at least. I'm going to risk being boring and tell you that property records are truly fascinating and incredibly rich and detailed, especially when you get women involved because they have lesser rights that are being protected because a married woman becomes attached to her husband, effectively one legal entity, but she doesn't lose her rights altogether. So she's included in the records. So you mustn't think that women wouldn't be. About a quarter of the records have got something to do with them and you want them to make it as complicated as possible and to to indulge in trusts and all sorts of things and entailment where they specify the line of descent because that's when the records get fabulously rich. Having encouraged you to use the court baron, there are also other sorts of records like surveys of sort of single snapshots. The court records are a sort of continuous record through time. But every now and then they'll, they'll effectively do an audit of the whole manor. And that can be really useful, especially in the later periods, if it's close to the tithes maps or even later the land valuation 1910 to 1914. Because if you can tie those together, then you can actually pin it down with great accuracy, but a lot of work. I think that gives you a bit of an overview and my bias towards the court baron. Thanks. So yeah, it certainly does covering the property records and you mentioned misdemeanours as well and the importance of having records relating to women. So that's all really interesting to hear and how useful they can be later on. But sometimes, and particularly when we get back to the start of our parish records, we're going to want to try and use Bedoya records to, I guess, try and fill in some of those gaps before then. So then we're going to have to bite the bullet and potentially tackle some of the records yeah. in Latin and maybe the handwriting is getting harder. So I mean, Catherine, have you got any tips or insights? Like, What sort of knowledge base or skills do we need to have before we start trying to tackle manorial records? I think I would recommend looking at some of the online courses that the National Archives put out for free, which are fabulous and give you some idea of the letterships, because the letterships can be quite different and particularly capital letters 
which are really used for names. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell what the capital letter is. And the National Archives have some fabulous online courses for Latin and for the handwriting, the paleography. The other one is the University of Nottingham have a great website that goes into what they call a diplomatic of all the manorial records. They're very formulaic. And even if you can't read a word, you know what it is. So you can pick it out. My other tip is if you get really stuck with something, go away for half an hour, do something completely different and come back to it. Because you can look at it and think, I have no idea what that is, and come back half an hour later and think, gosh, that was so easy. It's obvious what it was. But uh, if you look at it for too long, you can't always tell what it is. The more practice you get, the better. You need to keep practising or you lose the skill. This is a bit of a random question I'm going to chuck in there. Catherine mentioned about how formulaic some of the language was. And Definitely, that is such a rewarding feeling as a beginner to a new set of records if you can start to spot some words. Like, I remember item keeps coming up. Before you know it says item, you don't know what the heck it is. And then when it has that word item, I now I'm actually like a small child. That's about the only word I can read. But I do feel pleased I can pick it up. Are there any other particular words that we could look out for, like any or any terms of phrases? Like in a will, we're used to those terms of phrases, but in manorial records or anything similar like that? I think there are a lot, and it is a very unique language. Sue mentioned about a fine or a fee paid. That's very often referred to in the documents as an immersement, which you probably wouldn't have a clue on. A boat, a B-O-T-E, rather than a, a sailing boat, is the right of a tenant to take wood from the common. Homage is the tenants acting as a jury at the court baron. Seizing is to take a possession of a freehold property and, and a turbury. Most people will look at turbury and think, oh, this is something to do with Tommy Cooper's fezzy hat or something. But it's a common right to extract peat or turf for fuel from the common land. And there's, there's hundreds of different languages and different words that are used that are unique very often to the manorial system. And if you don't understand what they are, when you're looking at a document, you, you just get totally bewildered by it. There are glossaries. The University of Nottingham has a, a wonderful sort of glossary of all of the, uh, or a lot of the terminologies used and, and so on and so forth. So it's easy to find what they mean. But if you're sitting in a record office looking at a set of documents and you come across it, you may not have that ability to look up straight away what something says. Thank you. I mean, that sounds a really useful tip maybe to just look at the glossaries first. So you've got a kind of fighting chance of identifying some of the words that you might spot in the records. So that's a bit about the records, but where do we actually find them? Where might actually track down these manorial records to research them. Ian, do you want to say that? Yeah, the, the logical place is something called the Manorial Documents Register, which is available online as part and parcel of the National Archives website. Um, just by way of a little bit of history and why it may or may not be up to date. It was established by the Lord Chancellor as early as 1926, just after the total demise of the manor system. It's supposed to record the location of all documents which are currently available in the world to some extent as to their whereabouts. It's not as updated as regular as it should be, but originally the, the Lord Chancellor would send out a survey every year, I think, almost immediately. 
and it will record the, the whereabouts of court records, the whereabouts of financial records, and so on and so forth. It is organised by county, and when you do the search, you can search either by name of the parish, or if you know the name of the manor, by the, the name of the manor. Electronically, it is not 100% complete at the moment, but the majority of the country is covered by it. And again, if you go on to the National Archives, onto the Manorial Documents site, there's a, a colour-coded map that tells you which counties are currently available electronically and which aren't. Unfortunately, if you're looking for an ancestor in a county that isn't electronic, then you have to go to the National Archives and you have a little bit of a complex system to find out what the records are because you look for the parish, you then look for the name of the manor, you then look on the name of the manor and find out where the, the records are. And they're not all going to be in the same place. Manorial records are not public records under the Public Records Act. A lot of them are in solicitors where the former steward of the manor has been associated with that company. So the records are, are held by the solicitors, usually in a tea chest in some cellar somewhere. They can be in county record offices. They can be held by private individuals. They can be in libraries. And um, for example, the Havard Library, University Library in the States has quite a lot of, of British manorial records. It shouldn't have because there was the decree went out that manorial records should not leave the UK. But very often the, the, the fact they've gone abroad when people have purchased lordships of the manors probably means that, you know, this was before that time. And the Americans particularly would love to be lords of manors. So they buy the lordship and alongside that there are records. The other place to go is to your local county record office, because even if they don't hold the records, they will usually have the knowledge of where those records are, or they will point you back to the, the manorial documents register, commonly known as the MDR, to enable you to find out what it is. But if you use the manorial documents register and you click on the name of the manor, it will categorise the, the, the types of records it will tell you who holds what. Just be a little bit aware that in the MDR, it might tell you they hold a set of records from 1701 to 1920. But in reality, they probably hold 1701, 1920, and a couple of years in between. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the whole span of records for the dates. bit so of an update is that Although not all counties are there yet, all the counties are now being worked on and Kent has just come online. I know Cornwall is active, so is Lincolnshire. And the online MDR, I used to think was, well, yeah, OK, it's useful until I started working on a manor in Lincolnshire and I didn't have that luxury. So I had to go and figure it out. And I, I will now rave about the MDR because it cuts out a huge amount of work in figuring out from the sort of original submissions to the Manorial Documents Commission, which is what I had to go and do to figure out where the records were. Yeah. Once, once you've tracked out the records, how likely are we going to be to find our ordinary ancestors, say our agricultural labourer ancestors, See so what do you reckon? Are the chances good or indifferent? It depends which records you're looking at. In the property stuff, agricultural labourers are generally not likely to own property, They're not likely to be a tenant, but occasionally you do get the odd one who gets a, a tiny little pocket handkerchief parcel. So you can't say not at all. 
but not very likely. The more likely place to find the sort of landless people it is in the effectively the estate records of the manor, where the lord of the manor is buying his manure and paying for someone to dig a ditch and all that sort of stuff. But that's that's somewhat hit and miss. So that's a, a little bit about the ordinary people. Who are the characters in the manor? So I was wondering, you, you hear about the manorial officers. Who are these people? And maybe what are some of the key roles and what are they doing to kind of help manage the manor? Ian, do, do you want to tell us a little bit about manorial officers? Yeah, part of the responsibility of the court elite was to annually elect a series of officers from the tenants to look after the tenants But the Lord of the Manor also had a couple of officers who were administrative heads, if you like, one of which was the steward. And very rarely did you actually find the Lord of the Manor sitting as the president of a a manorial court. So the steward, who usually had a legal background, was the administrative head. And he would generate a number of stewards' records, so the, the minutes of the court, and various actions that were taken are recorded in the in the steward's records. Also, on behalf of the, the Lord of the Manor, you had the bailiff, who was the, the day-to-day manager of the estate, who made sure that the manor correctly functioned. His counterpart, elected by the, um, the, the, the tenants, and the rest I'm going to talk about are annually elected um, officials, was the reeve. And he was elected by the tenants to make sure that the tenants fulfilled their responsibilities within the custom of the manor, i.e. within the bylaws that were set to to run the manor. There's also somebody like the barleyman who is responsible for enforcing any orders that were made by the courts. The Haywood was responsible for making sure that the boundaries, the hedges, the ditches, the fences and that were well kept so that stray animals didn't occur. And if stray animals did get through, then the Haywood had the responsibility for for rounding them up. The Beadle was responsible for civil peace, and the manorial constable was responsible for certain elements of law and order. And the the confusing thing there is that the, the manorial constable and the parish constable would work together, but there are very distinct, although grey, areas in what their responsibilities were. The Woodward was the person who, you know, by name, managed the woodland areas, um, of which there, there were quite a large locations and within each manor. And then, of course, you have the ale taster. And the ale taster was the person who collected fees from anybody that brewed their own beer. And in doing so, he had to sort of make sure the beer was to a proper standard. So as he'd finished his rounds, he was probably completely blotto at the end of it, having collected all the licence fees. There are others, but they're the main officials that I would say you need to be aware of. There's another phrase that I always wonder about. You have view of Frank Pledge. So what on earth is that? And does does that tie into officials or the organisation? Sue, do you want to go for that? That ties into the court leak. The view of Frank Pledge is a, a sort of oath of allegiance to the Lord of the Manor. So that's what they're doing there. So they're, they're just they're... taking an oath. It's not an official position. Ian, you it, want to come in? It's also a sort of a brother's keeper type situation because an individual within a tithing, which is a group of 10 sort of households or farms or, or whatever, elected each year an individual 
to be their spokesman at the court and report on what was going on in their tithing or frank pledge or whatever you care to call it. So I suppose a view of frank pledge could also include this report that was given at the court leet every time a court leet was held on the welfare and the situations and everything that were happening within their particular group of people. And there may have been more than one view of frank pledge or one more frank pledges in a, a manner than just one. So there's 30 houses, you'd have three frank pledges because it was associated with the tithing. Catherine, did you want to add in any more about the officials as well? Just that my favourite was always the pinder, who was the one who put string stock into a pinfold. I've seen various manorial documents where people have been fined for breaking the pinfold, which meant that they were getting their strings stock out of the pinfold without paying the fine that they needed to. But you can still see places called pinfold in the local areas. And it's possibly a good way to see that there was a manor in the area because if somewhere is called pinfold house or pinfold cottage or pinfold lane, it shows you that there had been a pinfold at one point and that there was a manor. Excellent. I love quirky little tips like that. It's the sort of thing it's actually memorable as well. So that's quite a lot about menorah records. And earlier on, one of you mentioned about estate records. And I think for me, certainly, it's, it's kind of quite confusing to like separate them out or think how might you use them together. So that's a really good view of all the different ways that you might use or some of the ways you might use manorial records for our family history. But when it comes to estate records, how might we use them to find out about our ordinary ancestors and how might we use them alongside our, our manorial records? Like Catherine, do you want to tell us a bit about estate records? Estate records have lots and lots about people in them. They can be difficult to track down because some of them are still in private hands, but the best place to look for them is the National Archives Discovery Catalogue, which shows if they're not in private hands um, where they are, which county record office usually, because they will be with maybe the main house of the estate rather than the place where they're about. The Duke of Norfolk owned land all over the country, but his estate records will be in his muniment room in his main residence. There are lots of things like maps on there, which give you some idea about how the land looked before maybe Ordnance Survey accounts. As mentioned before, would show people who were working for the estate, getting paid for them. But the main thing is the deeds, the deeds that were involved in making the estate up from maybe a smaller estate to a large estate. They have to buy the property from people. And these deeds often show things like the descent of property through maybe up to four generations. They often say who were the tenants of the property, who were the neighbours to the property, because lots of farms or houses weren't named, but they're just specified by who lived next door, whose land was next door. And also the witnesses are quite interesting to see whether they were using witnesses from London, if they were based in London, or if they were using local witnesses. And it always or nearly always gives people's occupation as well as where they lived. So that can be a help. I've found really interesting comments in letters, mainly from the Strathmore Archive in Durham County Record Office, 
John Bowes, who was a local landowner, he was very interested in the people who worked for him and his tenants. And he wrote to his steward and asked after people and talked quite a bit about his tenants and employees in his letters. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it, to find that out about your ancestors? That'd be a real treat to get these little lucky insights, wouldn't it? Yes. I found quite a lot about one of his gardeners in, in his letters, which I didn't expect to find, but they were lovely. And with the state records, you know how you can give a kind of broad time span for manorial records? Is it possible to give that time span about when we might turn to estate records for our family history? I think that sometimes the deeds in estate records go back a long, long way because people are proving they have the right to sell the property to whoever is buying it. So you might get deeds in bundles going back to 16th century sometimes. That's what we like to hear. (laughs) Nice, good, long time span. And earlier on, then Sue mentioned about how sometimes, with this is back to manorial records, that surveys were taken. But with estate records as well, then, would surveys, would they be kind of a, a relevant set of records for us to turn to? Yeah, they do surveys of their estates and sometimes they ride round the estates to check that everything's in order. Are we likely to find our ancestors named in them or are they just useful for an overview? Are they a name-rich source? Maybe not as name-rich as some of the other things, but they can have names in them. Ian, do you like using estate records in conjunction with manorial records? From my point of view, it tends not to be quite as informative, but I take what Catherine says about the fact that They can be name-rich, as any deed can be name-rich. I think the mistake that people may make is the fact that if you look at manorial records, then keep them separate from looking at deeds because they're done for two separate reasons. The surveys will be for two separate identities. Yes, use both, but don't try and intersperse them at the same time. Okay, that sounds a very useful user tip. How how about you, Sue? How do you find them? Depends on the sort of landscape of different tenures. In the area that I'm working in in Lincolnshire, there's several manors and a lot of freehold. Now, I wish I could find the deeds for the freehold, because for any one tenant, they've got a little half an acre from one manor, uh, an acre from another manor, a couple of acres of freehold, and they actually form a, a nice little farm. But I've only got part of the story for that farm because I've only got the manorial and not the freehold, which is frustrating. And this is where it's really difficult to know quite where the boundaries of manors are for the most part, because some of them were mapped, but that's a small proportion. So I'm trying to work out where the boundaries of a manor was from linking it to other maps. And that's tricky. Some of the manorial surveys were written, so they describe their boundaries as though somebody's walking around the manor and saying, you know, you turn left here at this oak tree and that oak tree. Well, of course, today they're gone. There's a housing estate on something or there's there's an industrial estate. So you can't pick up where they were. And even if you find an estate or you find a manorial survey that's in the form of a map, you know, a lot of these were done from the 16th century onwards. So they're not to scale. They're not as accurate as you would find an ordnance survey map or something like that. The advantage is that in some instances, you do at least have a list of people, of key people in the manor sort of associated with the map. And very often, you know, in the top left-hand corner of a manorial survey map, you've got this list of tenants or you've got a written description as well. 
but it's relating it to what you see today. And I think the average family historian who finds something on a manorial survey and then goes along to that village or town to try and identify it is going to struggle and just not going to be able to do it. So that could end up to be a frustration from the, the point of view of finding where somebody was in a particular manner. That sounds like it's tied in a bit to your frustration, Sue. It does. A really fantastic study of Earl's Cone is online that's based on two manors and a whole lot of other records all combined together. It sort of looks at that. I know there's been some more recent work done on it as well. That is a 30-year project. That's the amount of work it takes for some of this stuff. But if we could map every manor, it would be fabulous. That's really useful to know that we're not doing anything wrong when we get to the records and we find it hard to find those boundaries. That is just the nature of the record. So like, we need to kind of retain our confidence, keep trying, keep persevering and use anything we can to piece things together. So Catherine, my estate maps, how might they stack up against this conversation? Are we going to find them useful? Particularly if you find estate maps that are before the Ordnance Survey, they're fabulous. Some are better than others. Some are just on the back of a piece of paper that they happen to find, but others can be very detailed, particularly with some of the larger landowners. Thank you all of you for sharing your ideas and obviously your masses and masses of practical experience you've had actually using these records. It's one thing reading about them and there's another actually going away and using them and trying to employ them to find our details about our ancestors. That's a whole different thing. It's much harder, but it's given us a really useful insight into how we might use them, what we might find out about our family history. So thanks to Ian Waller, Catherine Ryan and Sue Adams, the Manorial Records experts. And that ends our Agra podcast on manorial and estate records. Go to our website at agra.org.uk when you can find more information about what we have discussed and some of the sources that you can use to find out more about your family using these particular documents. You will also find a directory of Agra genealogists, all of whom are assessed by Agra's board and must work to our code of conduct. Good luck with your future research and may your brick walls tumble.